0: Hello, this is Jerry Nowicki with Capital News, Illinois, back for our 12th installment of Perspectives on Progress, a collection of conversations about race with Illinois leaders. Thus far, we've been speaking with members of the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus. We send emails to every black state lawmaker's office, and we've gotten in touch with about half of the members of that caucus. Nearly daily for the last three weeks, we've been sharing our conversations in podcast form and in the form of news stories. In the coming days and weeks, we'll expand the field of those taking part in the discussion to hear from others on their thoughts on how to move forward as well. You can follow us at capitalnewsillinois.com or on your favorite podcast app to listen to those upcoming conversations. Today, our guest on Perspectives on Progress is Representative Will Davis, a Democrat from suburban Hazelcrest who has served in the Illinois General Assembly since 2003. He was a lead negotiator in the House for the major evidence-based funding formula reform for Illinois' K-12 schools a few years back, and he's the current sponsor of the Path to 100 bill to push Illinois toward a cleaner energy future. I spoke to the representative on Friday, June 5th, and he shared his feelings on the video of George Floyd being killed under a police officer's knee, the emotions it and similar videos evoke, and the role of lawmakers and the media in advancing the conversation. Okay, so my first question has been um, what goes through your mind when you see a video um, like that of, of George Floyd being killed?
1: Well, For me, first of all, uh, I'm ashamed. Uh, I mean, there's always a conversation about respect for law enforcement, but that, res- that respect doesn't go both ways. I mean, I'm not a police officer, so maybe there are some things I don't understand about police tactics and situations, but clearly it looked like Mr. Floyd was in custody, being cussed, hands behind his back, on his stomach. So, you know, probably not a lot he can do. And I've even seen uh, police officers use those big zip ties, so if they were concerned, they could zip tie the key. Uh But he was subdued. And to me, once that happened, there was just absolutely no need for the knee of an officer to be on his neck, and again, if he tells you I can't breathe, I mean, do you think he's lying? I mean, understanding what you're doing to him, why would he lie about not being able to breathe? So, and so, just ashamed that again, in the twenty twenty twenty, here we are, still having to deal with these kinds of race related issues. So, well, again, when I think about, you know, just my, my visceral and guttural reaction to it, just, you know, obviously disgust. And, again, just a shame at law enforcement, you know. And, and, and uh, law enforcement wonders why communities, particularly minority communities, in this case the black community, have such challenges with them. And most of the incidences seem to be black people dying at the hands of of white officers, which is just front center. So if we if we walk around thinking that race is, and racism is dead in America, and then we are walking around with a very false sense uh, of what we think is going on in this country. I mean, you have to acknowledge that there are parts of the state of Illinois On this country where you know, there are white communities that have very little to no interaction with black people, except for possibly what they see on TV. I mean, I remember going to school in Carbondale uh, in, uh, in the late '80s. That's where I got my uh, my bachelor's degree from. And I encountered individuals who went to school there, who we became friends with, we talked there Like you know, we didn't have any black friends growing up. You know, we didn't have any interaction growing up. And and they were, you know, they were good people. And, and, you know, the next generation of possibly, you know, those individuals who probably had a different perspective about black people uh, from their upbringing and the way they were raised. So, so, you know, we often say racism is alive and well in this country. And unfortunately, it is.
0: So what other types of deja vu feelings or... Um, exhaustion comes when you have seen this over and over again.
1: I mean, I mean, it's just it's just that feeling of deja vu, and, and you're exhausted because you know what's coming after it. Yes, you're going have the the peaceful, no protest, bringing truth to power, and just really acknowledging, you know, the challenges that we have in this country um, as well. Um, but then you're also going to get kind of the negative side of it. And again, that's the opportunistic side of people who are just simply cowards um, who have no real desire to do what's necessary to take care of their families and they see that as an opportunity to, to, uh, to care for their community as well. And then these are the same people that complain about what's not in the community and why we don't have certain types of businesses in our community or, for that matter, we only have certain types of in our community. Same people, same people, and I, I don't know, you know, I mean, how would they feel if somebody wanted to burn down their house and go and, and rape, you know, uh, rape their homes and tear down their doors and, and take their belongings? I mean, I mean, at some point, you know, you have to reflect on how you would feel about it if somebody attempted to do this to you. And, and maybe maybe take a different path, or maybe see it, see it differently. But um, you know, you just kind of shake your and go, you know, "Oh boy, here we go again." And the reality is that those actions don't make this conversation any easier, because those who would, who who feel that we are a, a certain type of people say, "Look, see, look, there you go again." You know, that's that's what they do. You know, and they're missing, you know, what. Began all of this. And, and again, as I, as I looked at some of your, your questions, I think what we do not, what we cannot lose sight of is what started all of this. The fact that this was probably centering and, and has continued to simmer from incident to incident, this, this continues to simmer. But what started all of this? And it started with the action of a police officer who, it appears, overstepped his authority, in terms of trying to to seduce someone, regardless of whatever Mr. Floyd did that brought him in contact with police to begin with, then then how do you handle that situation? And it just appears that police officers still don't know how to handle these kinds of situations. They just forgot. I mean, as a legislator, we talk about trying to put legislation in place for police sensitivity training, uh, and things like that, and then the response that we get from them is, well, who's going to pay for it? Well, why won't you pay for it? This is about making your police officers better. This is about making your communities safer. Mm-hmm. Why, wouldn't you want, why wouldn't you want to pay for that training to make sure that your officers are the best that they can be? And so it gets reduced to that. Now, despite the fact that the state of Illinois gives a lot of money to our municipal governments, you know, there's a phone called Local Government Distributor Fund, in which they receive uh, portions of dollars that are collected in the state and they uh, redistribute it back to the state of Illinois. So what's going to happen is that legislators are going to say, well, you know what, we're going to mandate the use of your local government distributive fund to do these kinds of things. And that's just going to add another tension to it uh, on some level. Uh, but what are, what else are we supposed to do? What, what other... What other you know, what other choice do we have but to start mandating things like that and using the tool, right? Once we use the tools, then it becomes a matter of enforcement. And we've seen situations where local police departments don't want to do what the law says they want to do. Case in point, I remember years ago when we put in place that police officers had to uh, do contact cards when they made traffic stops where we would record information like race data on traffic stops. Police departments refused to do it. So if I break the law, I know I'm going to get punished for doing so. So here police departments, municipalities were breaking the law because it was law. And it was okay for them to break the law. So again, there's even that level of disrespect for what we do and what we have to do as legislators and making sure that everybody responds to it appropriately.
0: What do you think next steps are addressing structural racism and and maybe legislatively in November or from the governor coming up?
1: Well, as a legislator, sometimes based on the bill and the debate, one thing that I often tell my colleagues, and that's both my Democrat and my Republican colleagues, the reason that I'm introducing this bill is because we aren't doing it otherwise. I don't want to have to reintroduce bills all the time to try to create opportunities for people of color. And that's, that's not that's not necessarily my desire. But if that's what it takes, then that's the tool that I have available to me. And, and I'm always going to use the tool that I have available to So to answer your question as a legislator, I always look to my tool. And my tool is legislation, bringing the conversation. And sometimes what I've learned is that only when you file legislation do you get the conversation. Because you can talk, and as long as it doesn't materialize anything, everybody's okay, or certain people okay. But when you file it, then they know you're serious. And then they, then they want to talk to you about it. And to try to say, well, you don't need to file it. And I go, I do need to file it, because you aren't dealing with the situation otherwise. You haven't addressed the situation otherwise. And again, it just goes back to that we know that there are people In this state, who have no interest in seeing ethnic groups uh, succeed. They just are not. They know that the state of Illinois is a cash cow. They want to make all the money they can from the state and have no desire in seeing that wealth be spread out to different people throughout the entire state of Illinois. There's way too many of those people still in Illinois who feel that way. Many of them work in state government. Yeah, we have racist employees that work in state government, absolutely. And unfortunately, they've been there long enough and have positioned themselves to have control and to be able to dictate how money is spent and who, and who gets the benefit of those dollars. And so that's a constant fight, talking to the agency heads about making sure that the people that you have working in your agency do what they are supposed to do. And that's why you again you see legislation coming out of it because that's necessary. But everything that everyone else has said is, is true. The governor, like like for instance, um, members of the black caucus, we have a kind of a, a group meet chat that we you know talk to each other in, if you will. Um, and uh, and I saw a post in that today where Governor Pryor signed an order uh, last year involving. I, I don't say the treatment, of, but something involving gay and lesbian students, the LGBTQ community, an executive order to address their needs. So what LaShawn is saying, okay, Governor, we know you can do it. We know you've done it before. Where's your executive order to address the needs of the black community? That's, that's what he's asking for. And he's just reflecting on what the governor has done. If the governor felt strongly enough to support, the gay, lesbian community, with an executive order, and that's fine. Okay, where are you at, Governor, with signing an executive order to help the black community? And we're talking about, you know, a lot of different needs that exist. So I agree with what LaShawn's saying. Right? But it has to be an informed conversation. It needs to take in the, the grassroots effort that Senator Peters is talking. And you can take into consideration all level of individuals who can come together collectively to produce what then the governor needs to sign. Now, I don't know who in the governor's administration truly informs them, informs them on issues regarding uh, African-Americans. I'm not sure who that person is. Uh, I don't think he has a person, per se, that he looks to to say, hey, help me to understand and and dissect what, what this is. Um, but that notwithstanding, you know, certainly he has legislated, uh, and I believe there's been kind of one-off conversations with members of the Black Caucus, but he hasn't reached out and said, hey, I want to talk to the entire Black Caucus about what's going on, and, and, and give it the time necessary to have the dialogue? This is not a, okay, Let's get, we've got a half an hour, so let's hurry up and do this, because I've got to move on to something else. No, if he's serious, He'll take the time to sit and to talk. This is where he needs to have the time to set set aside the time to have the conversation. So again, to my knowledge, there's been no ask to have conversations with the entire black office.
0: So what would you say um if you could get one request fulfilled in, in the rebuilding, what would it be? What do you think um these communities need?
1: Well the communities need dollars. And I know that's um you know we often say that. But they are going to need dollars. You know, and particularly for small businesses. Um there was a story of a young lady who had a a party store, someone on the south side of Chicago, whose store didn't get looted, but she was next to a store that caught fire, you know, and I don't know if she lost any inventory, but when you look at her story, um, she's going to need help. She's going to need help navigating the waters of insurance Uh, uh, and and things of that nature. We put programs out for individuals, but sometimes there's not a lot of guidance on how to get to it. You know, you can't just stop it saying, "Hey, here's a pot of money," and there's no guidance to get to it, or or the opportunity to get it. You still have to jump through several several different hoops. So, I think first and foremost, in terms of rebuilding community, is you're gonna need you're gonna need money to do so, um, and then you're gonna need the governor. Um, to help support, you know, policy significant policy change, you know, again. And as much as you think about the city of Chicago and they have a a review board or a COPA, I believe it's called, you know, where when they're on their actions of officers, they've got the independent boards to come and investigate those. Well, unfortunately, incidences like that don't just happen in the city of Chicago. They happen in other areas as well. And suburban communities don't have that capability. To do so. So is that something that we need to have a dialogue about? Maybe in dividing up state regions and having these regional boards available to investigate issues of alleged police misconduct, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, but but those are the those are the kind of overt things. I think we you know we need to be talking about. Again, as legislators, we're going to try to use our tools. Through legislation, we're going to try to use the state budget to direct priorities, direct money to where those dollars are needed. And again, I'm not saying that it's all about just what we need. There are other needs throughout the state that don't involve communities of color. And I'm not discounting those uh, in, in any way right now. Definitely not discounting those. But we see where the urgency We see where it's truly needed right now. And this is where you have to focus your attention and focus your earth. In the same way that the governor figured out how to focus resources to address COVID-19, and he pulled resources from different agencies to do it and make it happen, it's it's the same conversation. Same conversation. How do we pull resources or direct resources that exist within these agencies to address what the most immediate need is right now? And and the governor is the one that can set the tone for this effort. He can set the tone, but he has to be willing to set the tone. He can't just react to what's going on. He has the ability to be proactive in addressing the effort, not just reactive to them. So
0: is there is there anything more you'd like to see out of maybe your um, white Democratic colleagues or even your Republican colleagues on this issue? Um,
1: well, I want, first of all, to acknowledge many of our colleagues, white and otherwise Jewish, if you will, that are using their social media platforms to, you know, to express their support for the Black community, um, and and to share their stories of being supporters, if you will, and and we need that to continue. We definitely need that to continue. But and and here's the tough part of it. So at the end of the day, when you're elected, you want to remain elected. To be quite honest with you. If anybody tells you differently, I think they're not being truthful. Once you get there, you may have a certain period of time that you want to be there, but until that period of time is up, you want to continue to be reelected. And, and so we have to stop using that, though, as the excuse to why members, particularly some of our white colleagues, can't step out on some of the things that members of the Black Caucus would like to see them step out on. And, and vote positive positively and, and in favor of and moving issues. So often the, the, the characterization that a piece of legislation is quote-unquote soft on crime is something that allows for particularly many of our white members not to vote on something because my community doesn't want me to be soft on crime. <clears throat> no, but I think your community wants you to be in
0: compassionate and what we're
1: trying to do are advance things that allow for compassion for individuals, either as they interact with the law enforcement system or criminal justice system, or once they have interacted on their transition out of and back into normal society. In case of point is that there was, I remember a few years ago, that there was an opportunity or an effort by a, a member of the Black Caucus in the House to advance a, a, a bill that would allow for tax credits for individuals, for businesses, who hired ex-offenders. Tax credit for a business owner who was willing to hire an ex-offender. We do tax credits all the time. To me, this was just another tax credit. And there were some white members of the Democratic caucus who said, well, I can't, I can't support that because my community will think I'm being soft on crime. And, I, and it was like, what crime are you being soft on? This individual has been arrested, convicted, served, sure, their time, and now they're out. So what crime are you being soft on? And, and then you get blank stares because you have to challenge them that way, and you just get blank stares because the reality is that I guess in their hearts they want to be okay with it, but they claim that their constituencies don't want. And I think I think that means you don't know how to talk to your your constituency. I mean I know when I vote certain ways and my constituents. Constituencies feel what they won't about it. What I say is, we can agree to disagree, but let me explain to you why I did what I did. And I think that's what's missing with some of our colleagues. They don't have what it takes to go back to their communities and truly say, This is why I did what I did. I understand maybe you don't like it for this reason, but I'm helping my business owners to help sustain themselves and give them an opportunity. They want to be able to do the right thing, and the, and the idea of giving them the incentive to do it, not that big of a deal. Again, we incentivize a lot of things in state government. So why not give them this opportunity? So I use that just as an example of where sometimes our white colleagues use the crutch of their district as a reason not to do anything. When I think if they went to talk to their district, again, I'm not saying that their district is going to agree, but at least they talk to them and they sure why.
0: So you had mentioned there is frequently incidences where A lot of white people in this state might not have had any interaction with black people other than what they've seen on TV. So they're judging from media depictions in that regard. So what can we as media do better in this conversation? Well, I think one
1: of the things that um, the media can do, and and they do, and just need to continue to do, is accountability. Because sometimes... When laws are passed and when things happen, you know, people move on. You know, sometimes they forget about those things. You know, I think the media is a very unique opportunity to bring, to, to, to bring things back to our remember, bring things back to our attention, and ask, well, what happened? You know, this, this incident, this, you know, all this stuff happened, you're the ones that can kind of keep everybody honest. I mean, bring it back to us and say, Well what happened with What 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 came out of this? Um, as well. So I, I see that as well. And and what you see is um uh you know the media covering everything. But I think that sometimes the media needs to be consistent and I don't know what the rules are regarding when incidents can happen. You know, I watch the news and sometimes they it seems like based on where the incident took place or who the victim of it was, or who the perpetrator was. Sometimes we acknowledge that someone is black, or is white, or Latino. Sometimes we don't they acknowledge that. And sometimes, sometimes the, the perception is that the media picks and chooses, you know, who they want to highlight, or which race or community they want to they want to highlight as well. And so I, I think I, I guess what I'm just saying is making sure there's consistency. And how things are reported uh, and those issues are reported and I mean the media is doing the best they can and these are tough situations as well and, you know reporters uh, and cameramen sometimes are putting themselves in harm's way to, 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 to cover these stories and we appreciate it uh, very very much and taking the time to write about this.
0: So- I have to ask, is there anything, any questions you think I should have on this list as I talk to other lawmakers that maybe I'm overlooking or um, maybe we haven't discussed? Well,
1: I hope that you take the opportunity to reach out to a few white Democratic lawmakers that represent conservative areas, be they Democrat or Republican. You know, as well as some intentional Republicans Hey, I want to talk to you about all this stuff. What's going on? You know, and, and I'm curious to know how they feel and how they interpret and respond to this. So hopefully as part of, you know, your reporting efforts, that will be a part of it to get, you know, that kind of fair, fair and balanced report.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, but no, I appreciate uh, your questions, the conversation. Thank you for... Uh, giving us this platform to express our, our concerns and share our thoughts and ideas. And uh, again, we appreciate it very
0: much. All right. Thank you. That was Representative Will Davis, a Democrat from Hazelcrest, in our 12th installment of Perspectives on Progress, a special edition of our Capital Cast podcast. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. I'm Jerry Nowicki with Capital News Illinois, a State House reporting project of the Illinois Press Foundation. Thank you for listening and check out CapitalNewsIllinois.com for more from this series and our other State House reporting.